the world changed in 1989. When the Berlin Wall fell, an old order fell with it. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, the Iron Curtain ripped. We all knew that things were going to be different when the wall came down, but few of us realized how significant it was. 9-11 was 12 years in the future. New labor had not yet formed. The digital revolution had yet to hit the populace at large. A new era began that day, but few appreciated what the old one was. It wasn't just the 35-year-old Cold War that ended, but a centuries-old set of assumptions about what values should govern policy, the place of religion in the public square, and what it was to be civilized. All of this began to collapse that day, even though it was difficult to see through the concrete dust of the toppling wall. It was not just the Soviet era that was over. The modern era was over. I'm Philip Pugh, and this is a new podcast that I am calling From the Bastille to Berlin, The Western World in the Age of Ideologies. Episode 1, Whose Era Is It Anyway? For historians, and amateur historians such as myself, the terms modern and postmodern are nearly useless except as vague identifiers of a field of study. When someone says that they study, say, the early modern period, we know vaguely that they study a period that roughly covers the end of the Middle Ages, whenever those were and probably ends around 1800. But modernity in philosophy doesn't really begin until Descartes. Modern music really begins with Wagner. Modern poetry begins with Yeats, or even Eliot. So in this podcast, I hope to look at a period that I will call High Modernity, or the Era of Ideologies. And I am very arbitrarily defining it as happening from 1789 to 1989. A nice, clean two centuries that are quite distinct from everything that comes before them and will probably be seen as some quite different from what has come after. In these two centuries, political movements will rise and fall. Art movements will come and go. Philosophical and scientific assumptions that held for centuries will be questioned. It was an age of optimism. It was an age of despair. It was the noon of civilization. It was the midnight of barbarism. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. But to tell this story properly, I have to back up and lay some foundations to explain how the institutions and ideas which formed these centuries came about. How did the modern state form? What ideas were instrumental in creating the French Revolution? How did Romanticism and Classicism get started? And what did any of this have to do with the Scientific Revolution? In these next couple of episodes, I hope to address these issues. But first, I think some explanation of my own interest in the topic is in order. Modernity is a Western phenomenon. The globalist civilization in which we live originated in the West, though it's now spread whether by force or just good business sense around the globe. 
But even though it now incorporates many nominally different cultures, the categories of modernity are essentially Western. Even in those places where indigenous peoples have successfully thrown off the imperialist yoke, they've often done so through the appropriation of Western ideologies and technology. But the era since 1989 has seen a rise in challenges to this ideal of global civilization. In the past, whether one was an imperialist or a multiculturalist, one was, at least in theory, a globalist. Very few people took seriously a future in which societies might flourish as self-contained areas, and countries which resisted the globalist movement were often forced to accept it through gunboat diplomacy. But today, few people would dream of applying these methods to countries like Iran or North Korea. And when such methods have been tried, the combination of bad publicity and local resistance has shown them to be old-fashioned and short-sighted. But in order to understand this brave new world in which we find ourselves today, it's necessary to try and determine the nature of the old one that brought it into being. In doing this, I will be focusing on several themes. The rise of the liberal state and its rivals. The progress of the second scientific revolution. The dueling values of romanticism and classicism. And the philosophical changes that took place across this period. These are all very broad themes, but they interweave and I think they provide something like a coherent narrative. But there are some caveats, of course. My training is in philosophy and the history of ideas, and so my tendency is to look for great figures and big ideas as the main drivers of history, as opposed to social forces and economic or technological changes. Of course, in reality, neither perspective is wholly true nor wholly false. And so, in this podcast, I will be doing my best to give socioeconomic and technological developments their due, but with the understanding that all of these factors are driven, at least in part, by the choices of individual people. These people are constrained by many things, but their choices are real and cannot be reduced to the circumstances in which they find themselves. And these ideas, while they arise out of these circumstances, also themselves shape the world around them. So I'm going to try to avoid anything like a Whig or Marxist view of history, which would see historical events as inevitable or predetermined by what came before. Hindsight may be 2020, but if history were, really were predetermined, well, the financial crash of 2008 would probably never have happened. The sources of change and the causes of events are complex and unsystematic because people are complex and unsystematic. That said, I'm doing a political narrative, and so the focus will naturally be on individuals. But I hope to give economics and technology some credit where it's warranted. And, of course, as I said, there will be broader themes. There, the story I'll be telling is going to be largely political, but it is impossible to delve into that topic with talking, without talking about political philosophy, scientific discovery, and even art. 
we also have to talk a bit about a religious story and the way that religious movements adapted in the emerging new societies of this era. How did the Catholic Church deal with the French Revolution? How did Hegel's philosophy impact the Weimar Republic? How did Romanticism address political issues? These questions cannot be ignored. Plus, I'm a little bit of a nerd for the history of ideas, so yeah, I'll at least be having fun with that. So at this point, I'd like to give some background on how I came up with the idea for this podcast and why I thought about doing one in the first place. I discovered history podcasts a while ago by listening to David Crowther's History of England podcast, Mike Duncan's History of Rome, Robin Pearson's History of Byzantium, and most recently Ben Jacobs' Wittenberg de Westphalia podcast. In fact, this series could be seen almost as a complement to that last one, as my background episodes will pick up roughly around Westphalia-ish, which will make it a nice sequel to his podcast. That is, if he ever finishes discussing the early history of the Holy Roman Empire. Podcast footnote. If you happen upon this Ben Jacobs, that was not meant to knock your podcast. Stay in the Middle Ages as long as you want, or longer. The Gadeshi series was wonderfully entertaining, and I heartily recommend that anyone who wants to learn more about the early medieval period should check out your podcast. I seriously wish that I could spend 20 episodes talking about the history of the Holy Roman Empire. But tragically, for all who think that funny hats and obscure legal systems are the best way to run the world, it's all going to disappear, prince bishops and all, in 17 years. So there's not much justification for me discussing it at length. End podcast footnote. More seriously, a broad overview of this period is an excellent platform for understanding our own. The institutions created during the Age of Ideology are still with us. Its ideas still inform our thinking. Yet precisely for these reasons, if we fail to really look at these institutions and ideas and where they came from, we will not understand where we are today. Speaking very personally, I was born after the wall fell, and all my peers grew up in a postmodern world, after the Soviet era. It is even more important for me and my peers to understand this period because we grew up after it. Our po politics are postmodern. Our philosophy is postmodern. We criticize institutions in a postmodern way. The Götterdämmerung of the old era happened before we were born. So where are we starting and where are we going? We start with a revolution and we end with a revolution. At the beginning of our story, the bombshell philosophical work is Kant. At the end, it will be deconstruction. At the beginning, Mozart is the composer everyone is obsessed with. When we end, it will be They Might Be Giants. Plus, we have discoveries, inventions, art movements, literary masterpieces, political movements, two world wars, and a cold war. It will all be all kinds of fun and not a bit controversial. But where to begin? While July 14, 1789 is a convenient birthday for the age of ideology that followed, it didn't come from nowhere. So where do we begin to establish the context? The American Revolution? The French Enlightenment? The English Civil War? The Treaty of Westphalia? The Scientific Revolution? All of these will have something to do with what happened in 1789, and so all of them are going to be topics of discussions in the next couple of episodes. But 
Maybe you now find yourself asking, hang on, who is this Pew fellow? What does he know about history? How did I get here? And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. Wait, no, that's the talking heads. At any rate, uh, good questions. So, I am what could generously be called a history nerd. Ever since I was young, I have loved historical facts and putting everything from books to music to films into historical context. To me, history is a huge tapestry of all kinds of stories of interesting people with very few out-and-out -out heroes or villains. I am also fascinated by the interplay between ideas, technology, and politics. And there are so many chicken-and-egg questions here that the details of answering the question are both satisfying and perplexing. To take an example, I first encountered the Protestant Reformation as a theological movement. The historians I was reading talked about Luther in the context of the history and development of theological ideas. But then in college, I looked at it in the context of the development of printing technology and how the advent of mass media allowed Luther's influence to be disseminated in a way that meant that the authorities weren't as able to suppress it as they had similar movements a century earlier. But in the hands of the emerging state, print media could prove a powerful tool for propaganda. The ongoing theological controversy provided a positive feedback loop for printers. Suddenly, books weren't just for a select elite anymore, and ordinary people were taking part in political debates. Plus, with more books around, ideas could be cross-referenced, and old theories could be tested. But this growth in the publishing industry might never have happened had the Lutheran Reformation not jump-started it. Luther wasn't just a theologian. He was also intimately involved with the details of the printed editions of his work. He used the new medium to disseminate his ideas with an effect that no one had anticipated. It's a chicken-and-egg question which fascinates me, and we will see a number of similar problems in this series. I should last mention that my academic training is in philosophy, so, as I said, I tend to focus on ideas. But I, I also recognize that ideas don't arise in a vacuum, and so in these background episodes, I'm setting the stage for the ideas as well as for the political story. Speaking of background, I'm going to be starting our chronology around 1600. I won't be talking about every topic, obviously, but I will be focusing on the political and philosophical background that led to 1789 in France, but also across the Channel in England and, of course, across the Atlantic in England's colonies. So I'm going to end this very short introductory episode with a question and with that outline. So what was this old order? Why did the revolution break out? We will start answering those questions next time on From the Bastille to Berlin.